Welcome to It's Our Money with Ellen Brown, a look behind the curtain of global finance and monetary control with one of the foremost experts in the field. Author of the bestseller Web of Debt and the Public Bank Solution, Ellen Brown's groundbreaking work began the movement to create new American public banks. We'll look at issues surrounding the world of money and the systems and powers that control it, as well as the progress being made on the public banking frontier. The program is underwritten by Public Banking Associates, a national consultancy of experts advising government leaders pursuing creation of their own public banks at publicbankingassociates.com. The program called the Partnership for Progress that has been created by the Federal Reserve has a website that lists all of the current minority-owned banks that they consider minority-owned banks. Unfortunately, it's not a long list. The list, as you said, other communities beside the Native Americans. Uh, I, I think the Federal Reserve probably feels that that is a somewhat of a policy failure that they haven't been able to really jumpstart uh, banking. Might public banks be the mechanism that helps save the Federal Reserve's future relevance? Perhaps we'll be getting a better answer to that question in the coming years as the Fed starts to deploy some new digital mechanisms and programs. Today's topic on It's Our Money suggests that maybe they're moving in a more populous direction. Hello, and welcome to It's Our Money with Ellen Brown. I'm Walt McCree, Ellen's co-host and colleague at the Public Banking Institute. Today, we're going to take a look at how the current banking system in the U.S., centered in the Federal Reserve in Washington, serves the original American community of Native American nations, and how these tribal communities are beginning to see that they need to have their own banks. As primary servants to the private banking cartel, the Fed typically is seen to serve and primarily bend to the needs of the financialized monetary economy run by the large global banks. But the needs of the people for affordable credit and investment are deep and growing. Yet the Fed isn't really designed to get down to Main Street level, except through a few programs that are brought forward during emergency and other economical stresses. This is where a network of public banks could be employed by the nation's central bank to stimulate the economy more directly through nurturing and supporting publicly owned public interest banks. Our show opening guest today, Dennis Ortblad, has direct experience in dealing with the Fed on a very interesting frontier of creating banks for Native American nations. And you might be surprised, as we were, to learn that the Fed has a very forward-leaning attitude about their view in helping to establish these new banks. Additionally, Dennis, who was a member of the diplomatic corps in Europe, speaks of his first-hand knowledge of the Sparkassen banking system in Germany that has inspired the U.S. public banking movement. We think you'll appreciate his description of how the German government and local German municipalities benefit from their independent and extensive network of public banking institutions. Our second guest today is our friend Dr. Bob Hockett, who's returning for a continuation of his conversation with Ellen about the Fed's engagement with the many new technological developments that are entering the world of money and finance, and also a discussion about the prospect that China's renminbi could become the world's reserve currency instead of the U.S. dollar. So let's get started. 
we're speaking with Dennis Ortblad, who we're pleased to be serving on the board of the Public Banking Institute with. Uh, Dennis served in the U.S. Foreign Service as a diplomat in Germany, Japan, Poland, the Philippines, and Switzerland for over 25 years before returning to his home in Seattle. Prior to the Foreign Service, he worked as a university instructor in Germany and North Africa. As an embassy counselor for economic and financial affairs, he learned the importance of publicly owned banks in Germany and Japan for strengthening economic development. After retirement, he has worked to promote public banks in Washington State and Seattle. So Dennis, great to be talking to you. Yeah, <laughs> Thanks for having me on the program. Yeah, it's great to have such a wealth of experience that you bring uh, both in, uh, about public banking, but your foray into a whole new sector of something that we think is very important and perhaps representative of minority demographics in the country is with Native American nations. And the application of how, how public banks might be able to serve them. Can you give us kind of a, a little bit of a, of a landscape of how the Native Americans have been banking their sometimes considerable wealth and, and your approach here? Well, in Washington State, we have a number of Native American nations uh, with their own uh, trust lands. And uh, all of them are, are, in many cases, stalwarts of the local economy. Some of them are located quite in the vicinity of larger cities. So they play an economic role that's become quite prominent. And of course, um, they have uh, all a history of banking locally uh, or with major banks nationally. And so, uh, a coalition of five of these Native American nations were located in the South Puget Sound area, that's um, south of Olympia, our capital in Washington state, approached to me about the question of whether they might uh, open a public bank. And it was um, their interest, it was partly spurred by their knowledge about the work of the Sparkasse system in uh, Germany and how those are set up to serve a, a community. And because the Native American tradition is a heavy emphasis on community responsibility and community ties, uh, they found a real resonance with the idea of a bank that was dedicated to their local development. We at first uh, had provided a link for them to experts from Germany my role was more or less a liaison. And uh, a gentleman came uh, from Bonn, Germany in early December 18 and had a quite a very good discussion with them about how the Barkhausen Bank expertise can be applied to their situation in the USA. Unfortunately, uh, COVID intervened and the uh, offer or the plan really for the Sparkasa Foundation to send a team of seasoned bankers to Washington State to advise them, ran aground, uh, nobody could travel. Uh, Dennis, if, if I may inter interrupt, uh, some people in our audience probably don't know what the Sparkasa is, even though we know that it inspires a lot of public banking work here in America. Yes. But, uh, could you just kind of uh, briefly uh, describe what the Sparkasa are? Yes. Uh, there are probably 200 and more 
large and small cities in Germany that own their own public bank. What that means is that these local banks uh, have a mandate to lend to business and of course households within a defined geographic area in the vicinity of their cities and towns. And it's been an enormously successful model for over 200 years in Germany. And uh, while I worked in Germany, I of course was well aware of the Sparkasse because you see their branches in every, every town. And uh, they seem to be one of the secrets to Germany's economic success because they've always been a ready lender to local business with a long tradition of patient capital. So the, uh, it fostered then many strong, smaller companies. So the, they then uh, have set up a foundation and an interest of spreading the idea of using a public bank for local development and have been active in other countries besides the US. Actually, this would have been one of their first major projects in the US. But of course, as I said, that didn't work out. Um, but the, uh, given the fact that the, the interest remained for these uh, Native American nations, five of them, uh, they asked me to step in and provide a review of their options uh, for a public bank or how this might work. And um, it became clear to me that one of their key interests was uh, besides the uh, need to control their own money and have safe, what you might call keep their money at home in their own banking system, was an extreme interest in being able to bank uh, their considerable revenue from cannabis sales in a, in a bank that would take it without charging exorbitant fees. And they were experiencing the fact that they were banking now, sometimes with a credit union, and they were paying very large fees to do so. And so they were pleased with the idea that perhaps their own bank would give them more liberty there. So over, over the course of about six months, uh, I helped them compile some insights and I wrote a final report. And the method was basically during COVID to use the opportunity for widespread Zoom meetings. And I was able first to engage some uh, offices of the Federal Reserve System, starting with the San Francisco Federal Reserve Bank, because that's our region in Seattle too. They were very helpful in helping me set up a, a, a Zoom meeting with several Federal Reserve officials who were interested in minority banks. And of course, Native Americans uh, are in that category. And they lamented how few banks there were, public or otherwise, uh, that belonged to the Federal Reserve System or, or of any, any banks, whatever. I described to them exactly the kind of bank uh, the Fed, the Sparkos advisors proposed setting up, which would be on that model of being owned by the tribe, basically operated as a nonprofit with most of its capital, with most of its earnings being returned to its capital, et cetera. And uh, to my surprise, uh, the lawyers in the Federal Reserve and others said, well, that could work. We have no problem with it. There's no law in the U.S. that would prevent it. And that was a starting point. But then we realized that the Federal Reserve 
well, because of COVID's inter intervention, we found that we really had to explore more broadly given the opportunities under US banking law. So basically the report looked at how the tribes then, well, Native American nations could form a bank on the model of a normal commercial bank in the United States, but operate it basically as a nonprofit. And as part of our Zoom meeting research then, and with the help of the Federal Reserve, we, I and also the members of the board of these Native American nations had conversations with three existing Native American banks, and they're among the very few. The first one was in Montana with the Eagle Bank. Second one was with the Chickasaw Community Bank in Oklahoma. And the third one was with the Native American Bank based in Denver, Colorado. Um, and each was slightly different, but all of them had a focus on mainly the development of the tribe and its, its economic future uh, by means of supporting tribal business and tribal households. To take one of the examples, the Eagle Bank in Montana, they made quite clear that uh, they were operating in a manner that was not normal for a commercial bank. For example, they didn't lend widely to real estate. They operated then uh, with putting all of their uh, revenue back into the bank's capital. They paid no um, dividends to shareholders. It was owned by the tribe. And uh, in their view, it was a very successful bank, uh, but it was still modest because it's all operated in the town of Polson, Montana, near the Flathead Lake in northwestern Montana, which is not a heavily populated area. It's north of Missoula and Helena. But they were making a go of it. And more than that, they were doing fairly well. They owned and it was serving then the, the tribe. The bank was still in its early years of operation, but they felt they had uh, achieved something. And it had taken a while uh, to get it done to start the bank. And one of the, uh, the methods they described for founding this bank is a method that was recommended to us by other people, including Washington State's bank regulator. And that is they bought an existing bank and then converted it to the tribal needs. In, in essence, they're buying a bank charter. And of course they buy the business, but they don't have to maintain the, the same exact model of this, the business, then they convert it. And they do this in cooperation with the Montana, in this case, the Montana state regulator. But in the course of my research, I also found that the Federal Reserve has a spread program to promote minority-owned banks, but it's not very successful. They don't have too many successes. Uh, they have something called the Partnership for Progress, a kind of generic, not interesting name, but uh, they have, a, based on that, a commitment then to be very, very forward-leaning in supporting the development of minority-owned banks. And in addition, um, but it helps explain why they were so cooperative with me when I said I wanted to help found a Native American bank. They were already on board with that as far as policy goes. Uh, in addition, I got excellent help from the 
Minneapolis Federal Reserve Bank because they have been given the mandate to especially serve uh, the numbers of Native American nations in their, their region. So in all, I found a, let's say, a policy atmosphere for very favorable for establishing a minority of bank, but nevertheless, a uh, few examples of recent successes. There's also some money available, right, for... for uh... Yes, yeah, so that's the other part of it, that um, as you mentioned at the beginning, uh, many Native American nations now have developed some strong business activity. And of course, prime among them are the casinos they operate. And uh, that's the case of all five of the Native American nations that I was advising. And I know that when the German banking expert came here in 2019, he was surprised to find that they had definitely the capital to found a bank. And he said worldwide, when they work with minorities to try to establish some kind of banking program, the largest problem is they don't have capital in order to really get started. But that's not the case for the Native American nations, and for many of them. Um, well, I was thinking of government money, though, on, on a national level. At least there are bills, I think, that would, like the public bank bill, I think, would make some uh, capital available, particularly for minority banks. Yes, uh, it, it's come even more favorable as the under the new administration and under the efforts to support minority communities in the difficulty of our post-COVID uh, economy. The Emergency Capital Investment Program, which started earlier this year, is mm -hmm. focused on minority institute depository, MDIs categorically, as we say, um, and uh, even offering uh, $1.2 million as bonus to get it underway quickly. So there's a real focus there that, you know, obviously there's some commitment to trying to rebalance or at least to balance better uh, some of the, the monetary uh, resources and assets uh, available in these communities. Yes, and uh, one of the things we rec I recommended in our, this report uh, is that a, a Native American bank include within its structure the CDFI, Community Development Financial Intermediary. And uh, that is a wonderful tool set up by the Treasury Department and is largely there designed to serve minority groups and communities. And uh, it's rather a low-hanging fruit in terms of it's being fairly easy to establish. Um, and we did talk as well in our research with a Native American, a manager of a Native American CDFI here in Washington State, the Colville Nation. And uh, they've been in, in operation a number of years and have made a difference uh, in their area, which is not a very much, not a very populated area. Um, so, I, but is that was one of the things that all that the bankers we spoke with, who are Native American bankers, also praised the fact that they had CDFIs as part of their structure, which means they get favorable lending terms, and as you say, also grants from the. Treasury program um, uh, for to support the CDFIs, and they also uh, attract capital 
from other banks, large and small, because that helps these banks meet their Community Reinvestment Act requirements. Which is uh, an obligation that chartered banks have to serve the communities that they are in, uh, the CRA. Um, of course, in the architecture or the ecosphere of public banks, we uh, expect uh, and include CDFIs uh, as really important components for getting the money to the street because CDFIs, unlike com many commercial banks, are, are, are really focused on the success of their, of their lending, a little like the Sparkassen, uh, you know, that they, they follow their, their loans, uh, they know their customers, they stick with the businesses, and they, and they work for success. Uh, community banks, of course, are also rather in that category. Um, uh, are the banks that they're anticipating depositories for, you know, retail bank operations? Oh, yes. I mean, one of the drawbacks of a CDFI standing alone is that it's like a revolving fund. It doesn't have too much capital growth and any ability to leverage capital. But the, uh, in the case of the Native American banks, um, they attracted deposits from their region, not just from tribal members, but from the regions in which they work. And the depository banks, then they were able to extend their lending capabilities. That was particularly true of the Chickasaw Community Bank which is actually located in Oklahoma City and competes head to head with other banks, commercial banks there for business or for deposits. Um, I bank is yeah, an one of the top rated banks in the state uh, in Oklahoma. Yes. And uh, Oklahoma has probably, is probably the state with the largest number of Native American owned banks, many of them quite small also some credit unions, and they uh, are regulated, the, uh, the regulator from the Kansas City Federal Reserve told me that, uh, told us in our Zoom meeting, including the Native American members of the board, that the Federal Reserve regulates them in a different manner from normal commercial banks, because they understand their role as having limited capital, as having a purpose to serve the tribal needs or the Native American nation needs above all. And they're, they don't have these extensive real estate lending and other programs. So there are a special case for them and they're able then to, I guess, remain viable banks with the Federal Reserve access and of course, they are given guidance by the Federal Reserve, but they say it's not the same as they give a commercial bank, a normal, a normal commercial bank. I just saw an article. I hope I remember the figures right. But anyway, I guess a year ago, the Federal Reserve said that big banks, you know, Wall Street banks, could no longer buy back their stock. That the idea was try to to try to get them to make loans into the local economy, but they're not doing it, of course. And now the Fed has lifted that rule and JP Morgan is planning, I think it was $30 billion worth of stock of their own that they were going to buy back. I don't, not sure what that does to, you know, is that a controlling interest? Do they actually now control their own bank? But the point is they're not lending into the local community. So we definitely need the, these types of community banks. I did have a question about if you buy a bank, 
I assume you buy the liabilities along with it, right? I mean, they must have some long-term loans that are maybe, might be bad loans. It might be why they're selling it because they can't make a go of it. So what do they do with these things that are already on the books when they buy a bank? Yeah, I didn't get into those details, uh, but the ones that the, the three, well, the two cases that I talked with, the Chickasaw Nut Bank and the bank in Montana, I believe they had to, you know, absorb any kind of losses that that bank had had. But apparently, you know, they've done their homework and their due diligence and they understand the full cost of this, not just the buying price. Uh, but it appears that uh, they were successful. I don't know. I mean, your, your point is well taken, but they didn't mention any bad experience with that. Um, of course, in both cases, buying a bank in Montana or perhaps in Oklahoma is probably simpler than doing it in Washington State, where we have a, a higher median income or less, and we have a, fewer banks and higher prices. And uh, the the cost of getting the cost of capital for the Native American nations to initially purchase a bank would be higher, for sure. The when you when you buy a bank, as I understand it from uh, one of our banker consultants, is that you know you really have a variety of ways of of, of dismissing or uh, selling off some of the assets. Certainly, maybe even selling off uh, the uh, the customers to other local banks, and depends upon the the nature of the banks. But as you say, Dennis, the due diligence when you're looking at buying a bank, all of that has to be factored, and you have to take those into account when you're looking at, at your business plan, your revised business plan, uh, taking it from, let's say, a retail bank into a mission-driven public bank uh, is, a, is a bit of a shift, but you're also shifting management and other, you know, really the whole uh, ecosphere of the, of the bank operations. Um, I was surprised to hear you say, and, and really uh, pleased to hear you say that the Fed is so forward-leaning in this category. And it certainly seems to me that uh, other minorities beside the Native American nations uh, are also on their uh, targeted list. Uh, MDAs, the Black-owned banks, uh, those minority institutions that, that struggle to serve urban communities are every bit as uh, uh, much a, a, a target, a legitimate target for the Fed's interest. We certainly hope to see that in some of the projects that we're uh, focused on around the country that the feds will, will assist uh, in creating these new public banks that can have that, that purpose. Yes, and uh, as I mentioned, the program called the Partnership for Progress that has created, been created by the Federal Reserve has a website that lists all of the current minority-owned banks that they consider minority-owned banks. Unfortunately, it's not a long list. And uh, the list, as you said, other communities beside the Native Americans. And uh, I, I think the Federal Reserve probably feels that that is a somewhat of a policy failure that they haven't been able to really jumpstart uh, banking. So I, I don't can't explain all of the reasons why that is, but it is a very it, to start a bank ex nova, as they say, is very difficult. Uh, in other words, it's probably much better to buy an existing small bank. Um, and the, this, as you probably know, the 
process has to start with the state regulator. We were told then that the Native American nations here should approach the Washington state regulator, follow the normal process for a commercial bank, obtain a charter, and then on the basis of that charter, they would obtain Federal Reserve access as well. And also in parallel with that FDIC. In fact, the regulator in Washington state uses an FDIC application form so that both are completed in, in tandem. It, it's, it's a bit of a, a banker lore that the regulatory agencies will delay uh, and, uh, and can stretch out these, uh, process, these procedures for quite a while so that there's certainly no guarantee that a charter would be forthcoming with that. And I think that's certainly one of the things that we saw in American Samoa where the only other U.S. Uh, public bank exists uh, outside of the ones that you've mentioned as, uh, as native tribes. So the, the regulatory process is a juggernaut. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's wonderful. I think it's encouraging to see that the Fed has at least a dimension of interest in bringing these things forward, because the difficulty or the challenge of a publicly owned nonprofit bank fitting into the FDIC regulators' heads uh, is a challenge, I, you, know, you know, considering the momentum of the status quo and the, uh, the lack of perhaps creativity and innovative entrepreneurial spirit in the bureaucratic um, tribe. <laughs> we did way. The Washington State regulator, just like the Federal Reserve, was very forward-leaning about the opportunity to have a Native American bank. Yeah. We also felt that would be a feather in their cap if it actually happened. Cool. So I think there's an awareness in the government regulatory side that there's a great need that's being uh, unmet. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, unfortunately, it still is unmet. You mentioned also describing a bit about my work when I was in Germany and my familiarity with the public banking system there. And besides the Sparkasse system, I became very familiar with the national public bank uh, called the KFW, the Credit Unstalled for Wieder Aufbau, which translates as the Credit Institution for Reconstruction. But it's really one of the largest banks in Europe right now and is a major political tool for the German government, but it does a lot of good work in backing up lending for renewables in Germany, for example, they helped uh, spark the um, widespread uh, use of wind turbines and solar panels as in renewable energies and the financing of that, both for consumers in terms of uh, retrofitting their homes for heat uh, uh, conservation and also for the uh, producers in terms of subsidizing loans for solar panel companies and for wind turbines. Where does it where does it get its capital and liquidity? Do you know? That's the key question. Um, it emerged from the Marshall Plan of the late 40s and early 50s, uh, which was always set up as a repayment system in which the, the U.S. government provided the capital, the then bond West German authorities 
uh, would parcel out that in lending to particular businesses, small, large, and small. To It was always dedicated to support what they call small and medium business. And it was uh, then lent, it was not grant, it was lent to these firms with the provision for a uh, repayment. And then over the years, as that those capital loans are repaid, the fund within the control of the West German government grew. And then by the time the Federal Reserve was, I mean, the, excuse me, the, the Marshall Plan was phased out in the early 1950s, uh, there was significant money there. Uh, and it's not a depository bank there, right? It, so it's a direct depository bank. No, no. But then the capital, I think, it, right? It's basically a, a bank that is, um, I mean, I, its capital is, you know, based on the full faith of the German government, but it's also based on the uh, large scale loan lending programs they have both uh, within the German economic system and overseas. They do overseas lending for exporting and other kinds of things. And uh, they also have um, extensive aid programs. In other words, the German uh, overseas uh, foreign assistance program coordinates some of its programs with the KFW in terms of lending uh, to programs for economic development in developing countries. Um, we, we clearly need that now. I mean, infrastructure is a big issue. We've been big supporters of the National Infrastructure Bank, which would be on the model of the Reconstruction Finance Corporation. But the Reconstruction Finance Corporation issued bonds, and that's where they got their liquidity. And I think K I've read that KFW issued green bonds, at least, I know. I don't know if they do that routinely for all their liquidity, or do they just create the money on their books? You know, it's a, it seems to me that the government should be able to just create credit on its books and the money gets paid back. I'd love to see a model where that actually happens, but I don't know that it does. Yeah, I know they issue bonds, uh, but um, yeah, I, I can't fully answer your question, but the they do operate um, in, I think, similar to the model of the North Dakota Bank, but they are not taking deposits of the revenue of the German government, I don't believe. And uh, do they share in the Sparkhausen deposits, perhaps? They do, well, they do insofar as they're participating in loans that the Sparkhausen system makes. In other words, they have a sort of hierarchical system in which some of the capital that the Sparkhausen uses for term loans comes through the KFW at a federal level, and then is part of a loan to a local business or a local household for a particular program. They're usually a very program targeted. And during COVID, the KFW has played an enormous role, sort of similar to our PPP, but with extremely, extremely generous repayment terms in terms of the lending to business. Uh, you can borrow 1% with 30 year, whatever, and, and forgiveness. Forgiveness uh, provisions in the contract as well, yeah. so uh, it's a it's a very good tool to support German economy. And the reason I particularly encountered it uh, was because of a instruction I had from Washington D.C. to raise our interest and our, our concern about Airbus 
and about subsidies to the development of Airbus, saying this was unfair competition for our Boeing aircrafts and uh, there should not be these uh, direct subsidies. And uh, so I, after some conversations with my counterpart in the economic ministry, he simply said, well, this is not our government subsidizing this. Uh, Airbus's development programs have been supported by loans from our semi-private KFW, our, our public bank. Uh -huh. And uh, so I could report back to Washington that the, uh, it's not the government. done by a lending instrument that we had helped create for the Germans back in the 1950s. That's a really, uh, a really interesting point because we're, uh, we're looking at how a network of a distributed network of public banks in the U.S. could equate to something a little like that, that, you know, that we would have some sort of a central uh, a, a banking pool that would, uh, that would enrich and enable uh, the, the local public banks to move that money through their, uh, through their own uh, 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 networks of, uh, of lending. So that's certainly on our horizon or one of our, one of our dreams, if you will about where we could go uh, with the U.S. Dennis, just one more question on the Sparkhausen. Do they, um, the government doesn't, the local governments don't own those banks. They're, and actually no one owns them, but they're not for sale. They can't be, I mean, they're kind of, they provide husbandry for the banks and, and, and stability, but they don't own uh, the banks and they can't be sold, correct? Yeah, that's correct. I probably misspoke by saying they're owned by the, they're basically controlled in many ways by the local community. They're set up as a, I probably compare it to a trust law in the U.S. in which uh, they're definitely owned by a, I guess you'd say a legal structure in which the mayor of that particular city sits on the board, but it has other private participants from private economy and it is a uh, tied to its charter that it can only lend within a certain area with a certain mandate. Mm. And you know, you're right, it also has a legal structure that it cannot be alienated, that is, it cannot be sold to any other party. It, it has to be within that legal structure only. So that's the, um, it's, it's in a sense, not part of the, local government and has no mandate to give dividends to the local government and generally does not. What it does do is independently support cultural and sports programs and other things within the community with, uh, with its profits. Where did the Marshall Plan money come from? Was that taxpayer money? Yes. Not just a credit that we issued. Yes. It was taxpayer money. Okay. I mean, it seems to me if we can set up Germany with the public infrastructure bank, we should be able to set up our own country with the public infrastructure bank. But of course, we, we don't have the capital right now, but we could create it. Well, anyway, just thinking. That was a different era post-World War II. And of course, the Reconstruction Finance Corporation still existed in 1946 and 47. There was an acting model within the U.S. structure to do that. Uh, yeah, good point. 
Okay, well, it's been great talking to you. Did you have more? Well, no, I just, I, I just think this has been very rich with so many important aspects for people who are following public banking, thinking and planning, and particulars you shared, Dennis, were very instructive. And, and thank you so much. It's great to have you on the board of directors of BBI with all of your deep global experience. Yeah, well, thanks for having me on. And uh, I'm not a banker, just as a former diplomat. So uh, well, that counts. That counts. <laughs> Thank you very much for having me on the program. Great talking to you. Our thanks to Dennis Ortblad for that insightful look into the Native American bank pursuits and also the Sparkassen banks in Germany. And now we return to the conversation between Ellen Brown and Dr. Bob Hockett of Cornell University as they discuss the technological changes in the world of money, as well as the prospect that China's renminbi might become the world's reserve currency. We have this technocracy that's considered a big threat by many people now to the technocratic state. But the, but technology, of course, is good. We it's we you know <laughs> we need it, but we want to use it. Make sure that it's used in the public interest and that it's, um, it serves the equality for all and equal opportunity and all those things that, I mean, it seems to me the one thing that, the, that Americans have in common is the constitution and the bill of rights. I mean, that's why people came here. Everybody came here as an immigrant, except the indigenous who unfortunately we drove off the lands. So, I mean, there's been a lot of inequity, of course, in our history, but still what was appealing was this freedom of religion, freedom of the press, freedom of um, uh, opportunity in different ways. And, and so that's what we want to preserve. If we're, if we're going to have a, how do we avoid having a top-down control to, in other words, have a currency that everyone can use, a um, liquidity that everyone can use, that we can tap into. How do we avoid the controllers using it for their own purposes and not for public purposes? Mm -hmm. I think you propose some sort of body that determines whether it's a legitimate, you know, productive use or, you know, however, like you, you were talking about eligible paper, meaning mm -hmm. these would be businesses that are actually going to do something productive. Anyway, how, what, so we need some sort of control of the controllers. How do, how do we do that? Yeah, so I mean, I think there are a couple things um, there, Ellen. I mean, so on the one hand, um, how do we put, how, how best to put this? Um, imagine, first of all, that there was no problem with the unbanked. So imagine that the private sector banking industry, I know this is quite a stretch, but imagine that the private sector banking industry actually did offer readily accessible payment services and savings services to all comers, irrespective of incomes or street addresses or, or what have you. Um, if that were the case, there would be a certain amount, uh, a certain degree of sort of freedom and flexibility built into the system via the bank secrecy laws, the financial privacy laws, and so forth, right, as long as those are enforced and, and protected, right? And as you know, um, you know, if, if you're not um, a member of a sort of a marginalized group, let's say you're a kind of 
middle class or upper middle class American who has some money in the bank, maybe a few thousand dollars in an account or maybe five or 10,000. There's quite a bit that you can do out of that account that kind of free and unrestricted um, in the sense that the banks are you know, prohibited from sharing some of the certain kinds of data that are sensitive. Uh, and furthermore, the banks are not required to report to any federal agency your transaction activity unless it reaches a certain threshold. Um, and so the question, I suppose, is then, is there a way to sort of replicate and even improve on that sort of proto acceptable or, you know, quasi or nearly acceptable set of arrangements um, that makes it available to literally everybody, right? So where you don't have a problem with the unbanked. And furthermore, that takes this out of the hands of, it takes a lot more out of the hands of private sector banks anyway, because they profit on certain, you know, through fees that they charge on various things that they facilitate or assist you with that really ought to be just freely available to everybody as part of the sort of public monetary infrastructure. Well, I think the answer to that is we're sort of seeing it sort of trailblazed by Sweden uh, right now. A lot of people are sort of talking about China's um, move into CBDC. And now, of course, there'll be more talk about the US now that the Fed over the last couple of days has announced that it's going to get serious about CBDC. But, you know, if, if you want a really good model to sort of start with, we can maybe improve on it, but it's a pretty good prototype. It's the e-krona project over in Sweden. Uh, and what Sweden is basically doing is saying, look, we're going to have now a Riksbank issued digital krona. It just means, you know, the crown. But in any event, um, so the e-krona uh, is going to work in such a way that basically you have a, a, a freely accessible digital payments platform that's administered by the central bank. Everybody has access to it. Um, and privacy of the kind that we typically associate with paper currency or with coin is going to be guaranteed below a certain threshold amount. So basically cryptographically protected um, below a certain threshold amount. And then if transactions cross a certain threshold amount, kind of like basically the sort of threshold that triggers our bank reporting requirements here in the US, then the guarantee of cryptographic protection is, is, is waived, right? For fear that there might be money laundering going on or terrorism finance or something of that sort. Now, again, we can always argue or debate, you know, where should the threshold be? Um, we might also talk about sort of gradually sort of eliminating pieces of the cryptographic protection rather than it being a kind of a, a switching function where once you cross the threshold, everything is fair game. But basically it's not that difficult, technically speaking at this point for the Fed or the Treasury Department, as you know, in the, the digital greenbacks proposal that I've been pushing since last spring, I had the Treasury doing it basically by starting with Treasury Direct, which already exists any of us can open an account with Treasury Direct, right, in which we buy or, or redeem treasuries. So basically, we, I know from U.S. Digital Service that these TDAs or Treasury Direct accounts can be converted into digital wallets pretty quickly within a matter of months. Everybody being guaranteed one, allowing these things to hold um, dollar bills in a quote, you know, digital dollar bills in addition to treasury bills um, so that they can be used then as payment wallets um, and not just savings wallets. And then guaranteeing, you know, cryptographically protecting transactions that are below some particular threshold. 
we could do that, right? In fact, as you and Walt will remember, back in uh, over a year ago, I guess it was maybe March or April of 2020, um, I was saying, look, we could have this in place by the summer of 2020 after talking to USDS. Um, and so I don't see why we don't just do it now. Um, but you know what's probably going to happen. You know, the Fed finally says, oh, we're going to look into this. We're going to get serious about this. But that means they'll be studying it for, I don't know, a decade or something. By that point, we'll probably be talking about vapor currency or something <laughs> instead of digital currency. Or it'll all be like Star Trek or, you don't know, um, some, some science fiction yeah. film. Um, but, you know, it'd be really easy to do. I mean, we have the wherewithal at this point. And we have for a long time. We could have done a version of this probably as early as 1917 with Fedwire, right? I mean, Fedwire could have been made into something quite a bit like this. And that's, you know, 103, 104 years ago. <laughs> so, um, so there's no reason we can't do this really quickly. Um, and I think, you know, in a certain, it doesn't have to be blockchain based, you know, it doesn't have to be cryptocurrency as distinguished from cryptographically protected transactions. People get a little, I think, mixed up because the word crypto is thrown around in so many different ways and digitality as a, as a concept is thrown around in lots of different ways. Um, you know, that's, those are all sort of technical questions about, well, which platform is, is best, which one is going to be least sucking up of, of fossil fuels um, or pollutive. As, as you know, of course, Bitcoin is a, a you know, a natural disaster already. Um, so, so, I mean, but those are, those are sort of, in a sense, ancillary to the functional questions of, you know, functional as understood by reference to the functions of a money system or a payment system. Um, payment system wise, you know, we could have, we, we have the, the means of making all of this happen at the speed of light already. Um, and all the rest is just kind of, you know, sideshow seems to me. I do just have one, one more question with, or issue or whatever. I saw, this was a George Gavin video as well. He, he explains things really well. And so he was talking about how China was issued, you know, was already, they're clearly going to be the first to come out with their central bank digital currency that will be global because they can issue it and make loans to all these uh, developing countries that they have projects already going in or they already have loans with. And so it'll become an easy currency to trade with. And therefore, he says, it will become the global reserve currency. And obviously, the U.S. is in a better position to be the global reserve currency because that's what we are right now. But, but we're so far behind in, in the actual technology of developing this digital currency that we'll probably lose. So assuming we did lose that race or whatever, it doesn't matter. Do we really want to be the reserve currency? I've seen this both ways. It helps us and it hurts us. What would happen if China were the global reserve currency? And how might we become, how could we solve that issue, <laughs> that problem? Yeah, yeah, no, great question, Ellen. So um, we can sort of address this by, you know, sort of if we segment the, the, the account sort of to into sort of pre-digital and post-digital versions. So start with the pre-digital version, like where we are right now. Um, you know, China, of course, is one of the world's largest exporters. I think it's second only to Germany. A lot of people are kind of amazed that Germany actually is a bigger exporter than China, but I think because it's higher end stuff. And actually that, that might have reversed in recent times, but until surprisingly recently at the least, and possibly even now, uh, China is the second largest exporter in the world. But nevertheless, the fact that it's a major exporter like that, you might have thought would put the renminbi into high demand 
and thus might have made the renminbi a kind of global reserve currency already. But there's a, you know, or at least something in competition with the dollar. But there's a very straightforward reason that it's not, and that's that China didn't want it to be. And the reason China didn't want it to be was because, of course, if it's in high demand as a reserve currency, it's going to be tend it's going to tends to be forced up in value relative to other currencies, right? The more demand there is for a currency, the more expensive it is relative to other currencies. And then that ends up making exporting a little bit more difficult for China, right? Chinese goods become more expensive um, outside of China, at least, right? So, you know, one way to look at the way things have worked up until now is that China has kind of benefited by not being a reserve currency insofar as its growth model has been an export driven growth model. And the US has been sort of correspondingly disadvantaged, at least when it comes to the balance of trade and when it comes to domestic financial stability, because so much money flows in to the US from abroad, partly owing, largely owing precisely to that reserve currency status. So basically overvaluation of the dollar relative to the renminbi played a really important role in generating our ongoing trade or current account deficits with China over the years, which makes it kind of funny that Trump never really did anything seriously about revaluing the currencies, right? If he was really upset about the trade imbalance, that might've been a place to look. Um, but anyway, so the question, so, so now, now turn to the present time, like does digitality change anything? Well, not really. Right. Uh, that's not to say that things aren't about to change. I think things are about to begin to change, let's say, and I'll come to that in a second. But digitality just, you know, just basically makes it easier for a currency to flow um, in various places, you know, from China into China or whatever. Um, and so that itself doesn't make it any more or less attractive to have a reserve for your, you know, to make your currency or to let your currency be the reserve currency. But what ha what's happening right now is that the move toward digitality happens to be coinciding with another change that's beginning to you know, get underway in China. And that is that China is becoming less dependent or at least making a point of being less dependent on exports for its growth. It's trying to sort of transition to something a bit more like the US growth model which is the domestically generated demand model. You know, you basically want to be sort of autarkic when it comes to demand, the generation of demand for the goods, excuse me, and services that are sold, you know, by your producers and, and suppliers and, and, and servicers. Um, and so, you know, as China begins or sort of, you know, accelerates that sort of transition, assuming that it does, it will be a little bit less worried about becoming uh, or about the renminbi's becoming a reserve currency. In other words, it won't be that troubled. It won't be as troubled as it would have been before about the renminbi kind of growing in value. Because as you suggested, there are advantages that come with reserve currency status in addition to that one big disadvantage, right? The advantages include, right, very cheap borrowing abroad if you have to borrow abroad. Um, real, you know, great ease of basically commanding resources abroad because everybody wants you will take your currency and payment for those things. And as global supply chains grow tighter uh, ahead, which they probably will continue to do, notwithstanding the fact that one of the primary sources of supply chain pressure over the last year has been COVID, 
I think the green transition that so many economies are trying to sort of enter into now is itself going to, you know, basically put a lot of pressure on supply chains, namely for the so-called rare earth metals that go into many of the, of the green technologies. And which so China has, unfortunately. Which China has 90% of at this point. Yeah. Um, and if China wants to, you know, sort of be able to command such of those resources that it doesn't already command, a valuable currency is a helpful thing to have uh, in doing that, right? Um, so, and, and similarly, when it comes to other sorts of supplies that aren't just sort of stuff that you dig out of the earth, like, as you know, there's a, a major uh, microprocessor or microchip shortage at the moment, um, which is a, you know, a manufactured good shortage. Um, and, you know, China is trying to ramp up production. We're trying to ramp up production. Lots of countries are. But in so, you know, insofar as China has to go abroad for some of this stuff, again, a stronger renminbi might actually suit them pretty well insofar as the game changes from one of being able to exercise command over scarce resources, be they manufactured resources or natural resources, um, you know, to that from a game where you're basically trying to be the biggest exporter which China, I think, in the near future is not going to be that obsessed with. It's still going to want to be, right? I suspect China is going to want to be a major exporter forever. But there was, you know, up until relatively recently, it was sort of existentially important for them to be that. And I just think it's growing less existentially important um, over time for them to be that. And at that point, you know, they do get a little bit more friendly to the idea of the renminbi becoming a reserve currency. And that would be happening even if there weren't anything like digitization happening. I mean, even paper currencies, this would still be a, a thing right now. But the fact that it's coinciding with digitization kind of gives a little added impetus, you might say. I've been speaking with Professor Bob Hockett, who teaches law at Cornell University, has advised for uh, the Federal Reserve, the International Monetary Fund, Bernie Sanders, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, among other. Well, that's it for this edition of It's Our Money with Ellen Brown. Our thanks to our guests, our sponsor, Public Banking Associates, and to you for listening. Be sure to check out Ellen's latest writings on the economy and the changing world of money by visiting ellenbrown.com. And for more information on public banking, visit publicbankinginstitute.org. For information on how local and state government leaders can obtain professional insight and counsel about public banks from key national experts, visit publicbankingassociates.com. I'm Walt McCree. See you next time on It's Our Money with Ellen Brown.